That's right. They had infected people rub mercury on their body. And if you somehow don't already know this, mercury is incredibly, incredibly toxic. Please don't touch mercury. <laughs> I can't. I can't be any more clear. Mercury is toxic. Don't touch it. Welcome to A Popular History of Unpopular Things, a mostly scripted podcast that makes history more fun and accessible. My kind of history is the unpopular stuff, disease, death, and destruction. I like learning about all things bloody, gross, mysterious, and weird. Before we begin, a reminder to please support me on Patreon. Putting out episodes every other week takes up a lot of time and a lot of energy, and I love doing it, but to be able to keep doing it, I need your support. I appreciate any help that you can give me, even if you just joined a free or help get the word out there, and thank you so much for being an AFOUT fan. And a special shout out to my newest cannibal over on Patreon, Michael M. Thank you for your support, Michael. I appreciate you. You're now on with the show. So previously on the Aff Out podcast, I had taught you, not like in the last episode, but recently I taught you guys about the Minnesota starvation experiment. It was a World War II era experiment where men who objected to serving overseas because of their religious beliefs instead chose to volunteer for service, right? And some of them volunteered to starve themselves over the course of a year so that scientists could see up close and personal the negative impacts of starvation on the body. Body, the mind, and the soul. And spoiler alert, it got pretty messed up, right? One of the volunteers chopped off his own fingers to try and escape the program, even though he didn't. And they could leave at any time on their own volition. But these men didn't want to be seen as men who gave up, especially considering they weren't already fighting overseas and some of them had a hard time with that. So anyway, that certainly wasn't the only time our government has experimented on its own citizens. With the starvation experiment, these men were at least told in advance what was going to happen to them. But today I want to talk about a different experiment that actually predates the starvation experiment. One I actually mentioned during that episode anyway, the Tuskegee syphilis study or the Tuskegee syphilis experiments. From 1932 to 1972, that's 40 years, the U.S. government conducted a study where they tracked untreated syphilis, infections anyway, of untreated syphilis, in a population of men. I talked about syphilis in my episode on Jack the Ripper, which was a long ways back at this point, but don't worry, I'm going to cover syphilis again, in case you were worried about that. It's pretty brutal as an infection, and when left untreated, it can result in death, potentially decades after the initial infection. Seriously, decades later in some cases. The problem, of course, was that these men were not told that they had a syphilis infection. They were lied to. And the men chosen, by the way, they were all black men in pre-civil rights era South. The U.S. government studied these black men infected with syphilis, didn't tell them about it, didn't get their consent about risky procedures to track it, left the infection untreated, and spent 40 years keeping track of how it ate them up from the inside. The men unknowingly infected their wives. They had babies who were born with congenital syphilis. The ramifications stretched far and wide outside of the study itself, and when all is said and done, 28 men died from the syphilis, 100 died from complications from syphilis, 40 of their spouses were infected, and 19 children were born with syphilis. 
Some research suggests that those 100 men who died from the complications of syphilis died from what we call the tertiary stage or late stage syphilis, which I'll get into as well. So what we're going to do today is discuss the historical and in this case also the scientific context of the Tuskegee syphilis study. First, we need to know what syphilis is, how it spreads, what it does to the body, and how you can treat it if you become infected today. Knowledge is power, right? So no shame here. No shame about sexually transmitted infections. We're going to learn all about it and how to cure yourself if you get one. Then we'll take a brief look at the history of syphilis because it's been around for a long time. Once we establish what syphilis is, how it got to the United States, we'll look at the historical context. Why? No, seriously, why (laughs) did the U.S. decide to study black men infected with syphilis and lie about it and choose not to help them cure it when they could have? Racism, right, is certainly going to be a part of this story, but just saying racism isn't a satisfying enough answer. Historical context will give us the answer that we're seeking. We need to know what was happening in the United States in the late 1920s, early 1930s that led to this study and why only that population of men were chosen. So once we get all of that squared away, then we can learn about the experiment itself and its fatal consequences. So let's get started. Now, what I like about this podcast is that sometimes I get to delve into science, and more specifically, the science that I like the most, which is diseases, microbes, viruses, bacteria. Disease is my area of expertise and my favorite subject because I'm a weirdo, but I'm sure that's why most of you listen to me anyway. (laughs) Now, in an episode about a syphilis experiment, we, of course, have to learn about what syphilis is beyond the basic It's a sexually transmitted infection. Yeah, it is. We know that. But I want to go deeper into what it does to a person so we understand the full weight of what our government did by purposefully allowing syphilitic infected men to continue being infected so they could study them. They withheld a cure. I mean, they they had a cure for this. Penicillin, we'll talk about it. They chose not to give it to them. They watched it literally kill some of them. So we need to know how syphilis operates so that we can understand the gravity of the situation, right? Well, even if you don't agree that we need that context, I'm going to talk about it anyway, because it's fascinating and gross and weird. And that's what Out is all about. (laughs) And again, if you listen to my episode on Jack the Ripper, or even the Dancing Plague, I think I talked about it in the Dancing Plague too. We went over the basics of syphilis there as well. So if you listen to those, some of this might sound familiar Bear with me. It's important to go over syphilis before we get too deep into the history because, you know, syphilis is in the title of the episode, so we can't not talk about it. So syphilis is an infection. It comes from the trypanema pallidum bacteria, and more often than not, it is sexually transmitted. I only say it that way because it can be spread in other ways. Direct contact with an open syphilis sore will do it, or perhaps passed from mother to baby during pregnancy. A lot of diseases can be transmitted that way, so pregnant women got to be real careful. But most of the time, you'll get syphilis as a sexually transmitted infection. And just in case you were wondering, yes, syphilis is curable when caught early. It's a bacterial infection, so it's cured by antibiotics. Amazing stuff, really. One of the most important medical advancements probably ever. Penicillin is the go-to for curing syphilis. Though some people are allergic to penicillin, so there are other antibiotics that work if that applies to you. And because I'm still an educator, even though I left the classroom, let me remind you that you cannot cure a viral infection with antibiotics. 
Antibiotics only cure bacterial infections. There might be antiviral medications you could take to try to prevent yourself from getting a virus or making sure that virus stays dormant if you already have it, right? You can take vaccines to also prevent yourself from getting a viral infection. But most of the time, if you do contract a virus, you just have to wait for your body to take it out on its own or at least suppress it, right? So it's not going to flare up again. Because once you get a virus in your system, it lives in there dormant pretty much forever. Let me say it again louder for the people in the back. If you pick up a virus or a sexually transmitted virus, it will stay in your body forever. It might stay dormant forever. It may not be at a state where it could get other people sick, but it'll live in the corners of your body. And once you get it, it's not going anywhere. All right? Do with that what you will. Now, syphilis, bacterial infection, is a particularly nasty one because it can hang out in your body for months or sometimes even years without symptoms. That's right. You could have syphilis and be asymptomatic and not even know about it, but it will still do serious damage to your body because without treatment, a syphilis infection can damage your heart, your brain, your liver, your bones. It could lead to death. It's, it's pretty rough. It really does a number on you. Now, there are four stages of syphilis, and I'm going to go over all of them real quick for you. The primary stage is where you get small sores, little round sores called chancres, C-H-A-N-C-R-E-S. Looks like chancre. Chancras, okay? They're little painless bumps. I do mean painless. They don't hurt. They don't itch. You may not even know it's there, but it appears where you contracted the bacteria. So usually on your squishy bits, right? Now you can get one chancra. You can get multiple of them. It depends on the person. And it'll pop up usually three weeks after contact with somebody who has syphilis. The problem with it being painless though, is that you might not know you have it. You might never see it. I'm not going to get into the mechanics of that one, but perhaps it develops in a place where you contracted it, where you can't see, so you don't know it's there, all right? Now, it'll heal on its own within three to six weeks, and then usually it is gone. Then you're in the second stage. The second stage is usually a rash. It could actually pop up at the same time as the chancras or a few weeks after healing. It doesn't matter, but you're going to get a rash, all right? It's not itchy either. So it's it's not really that noticeable. Sometimes it's so faint, you won't even see it. You may not even notice, especially if, I don't know, you're a guy with a lot of body hair. You may not even notice that you have this rash. The rash pops up almost like a shingles rash does, meaning like along the trunk of the body, that's your torso, your back area, but it can also present on your extremities. It could be on the palms, the soles of your feet, on your fingers. Lovely, right? You might also get warts with it. You could lose some hair. You could have normal things that your body does when you deal with an infection, which is muscle aches, sore throat, fever, fatigue, weight loss, large lymph nodes. Your lymph nodes are in your neck your underarm and your groin area, okay? Now, if you didn't already know this, things like fever and sore throat and the rest are typically your body's response to things like a bacterial or viral infection because it's when your white blood cells will start attacking the invaders. So they try to make the host, which is you, inhospitable, basically by raising, really cranking up the thermometer of your body, right? Increasing your internal temperature. So when you get fever with aches and pains, that's actually your body fighting off an infection. Hopefully knowing that will help you feel better next time that you get sick and have a fever. It's just your body trying to help. Now, if you're lucky, these second stage symptoms, the rash, the fever, the sweats, right? They'll go away on their own. If you're unlucky, they'll come and go on and off for years, potentially. Now, the next stage is what we call latent syphilis. 
And if this happens, if you aren't treated with penicillin or another antibiotic, it's going to move into the latent phase. Latent, L-A-T-E-N-T, means hidden or concealed, right? Which is exactly what this stage is all about. The syphilis goes into hiding, basically, and can lay dormant for years. And again, if you're lucky, the syphilis infection will never come back. It'll stay dormant forever until you die, right? But if you're not lucky and without treatment, you will get complications. Around 30 to 40% of those in the latent stage will move into the tertiary stage where you get a lot of really serious, fatal, potentially, complications from syphilis. The tertiary stage is also known as the late stage of syphilis. Now, the infection at this stage essentially ravages your insides. It can damage your brain, your nerves, your eyes, your heart, your blood vessels even, your liver, your bones and joints. It can happen right away. It can happen years, sometimes decades later after the initial infection. Any of these complications can lead to death. So it's, it's awful. It's awful. Not fun. So now that we're straight on what syphilis is, how you can get it, what the symptoms are, and how it affects the body, let's get into the history. First, I want to start with the basic history of syphilis in the United States. If we're going to discuss an experiment where the U.S. purposefully allowed these black men to go untreated to study the impact of syphilis on the body, then we should know how it became such an issue here in the first place, right? I'll keep it brief, though. We don't need to know every instance of syphilis. It's been around for a long time. Just just basically how it became an issue and why they targeted this population. Now, where originally syphilis is from is still up for debate, but there are two main theories. The first theory is the quote-unquote New World disease. Christopher Columbus and his men picked it up while they were in the Americas, and then they brought it back to Europe where it spread like wildfire. The first recorded instance of syphilis was in 1495, when a bunch of French soldiers returned from war from Italy and they were ravaged with the disease. It wasn't called syphilis until 1530, so at the time they called it the French disease, which I love, the French disease. Now, the chronology of this could work, right? Since we know Columbus was Italian, even though he sailed for the Spanish in 1492, it could work that syphilis came back with him and then spread throughout the continent and was only really noticed when the French picked it up in Italy and brought it back to France, right? I don't know. That that theory, because he did sail for the Spanish, it doesn't adequately address for me how it was picked up in Italy and not Spain, but whatever, who knows? There's no record of this, so it's all speculation anyway. Now, the second theory is that syphilis was also endemic to Europe, endemic meaning that it already lived there and, and was present there and wasn't brought there, right? but it went unrecognized. Eh. The problem with this theory is that there's no concrete evidence to support it, and there are little to no medieval records talking about it. And it's not because it's the Middle Ages, all right? There are plenty of medieval records talking about other diseases, like my favorite disease of all time, the Black Death. So it's likely that if syphilis were present in Europe before Columbus, it would have been mentioned, right? Or if it were called something else, like how tuberculosis for a long time was called consumption, it would have been described, right? But it just doesn't really appear in the records. So I would think it was the Columbus one. Now, we do know that syphilis bacterium existed in the Americas, so it's a plausible theory. A 9,900-year-old skeleton was dug up in the Yucatan Peninsula. That's the peninsula in the southeast area of Mexico where people go on vacation. 
And this body did have evidence of a syphilis infection. And once the two sides of the Atlantic were joined by commerce, mercantilism, and a growing maritime trade network, syphilis was all over both sides of the Atlantic. Once settlements and then colonies, and then bustling port cities were set up in what would later become the United States, we see syphilis spread rapidly throughout our country. Now, I mentioned that syphilis was spread primarily through sexual contact. This isn't a new revelation, by the way. Doctors, physicians, and surgeons dating back to the 16th century, that's the 1500s, knew how it spread. Here's a fun quote from Giovanni de Vigo, the Pope's appointed surgeon in 1514, that's the 16th century. Quote, the contagion which gives rise to it comes particularly from coitus, that is, sexual commerce of a healthy man with a sick woman or the contrary. The first symptoms of this malady appear almost invariably upon the genital organs. They consist of a small ulcerated pimple of a color especially brownish and livid, sometimes black, sometimes slightly pale. That's the chancre, right? These pimples are circumscribed by a ridge of callus-like hardness, and then the skin becomes covered with scabby pimples or with elevated papules resembling warts. A month and a half about, after the appearance of the first symptoms, the patients are afflicted with pains sufficiently to draw them from cries of anguish. Still very much later, a year or even longer after the above complication, there appear certain tumors of hardness which provoke terrible suffering. End quote. So there you go. We've known about syphilis and its impact on the human body since the early 16th century. That's the 1500s, right? That's a pretty accurate description to how it spreads and how it impacts the body over time. So we already know a decent amount about it. Now, over time, starting in the early 18th century, that's the early 1700s, syphilis had calmed down a bit, only showing up periodically instead of all of the time in everyone. <laughs> Through the 19th to 20th centuries, again, that's the 1800s to 1900s, syphilis infections declined further, except, interestingly enough, in times of war. In World War I, World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, incidents of syphilis, along with other sexually transmitted infections, ticked up. I'm not going to deep dive into that one. You've got men away at war, things happen, infections spread. Okay. But this time around, for most of those wars, not World War I, there's penicillin. Alexander Fleming was the one who was credited with discovering penicillin. Okay, He did an oopsie, and he accidentally discovered penicillin while he was studying influenza in 1928. He had seen the flu ravage soldiers in World War I. I've mentioned it a couple times, I'm sure. You might remember from school, there was the great flu pandemic of 1918 to 1919. So Fleming was studying the influenza virus in his lab, and he accidentally left a Petri dish filled with the flu virus uncovered. Mold grew in this open Petri dish, and Fleming noticed that any bacteria around the mold were dead. A bacteria-killing substance. Antibiotics. It was a revolutionary discovery, even if it was just a lab accident. And penicillin, by the way, is not mold. It's the substance secreted by the mold. Clinical trials happened, and by 1941, an injectable form of it was available for use. By 1943, soldiers were given penicillin to help cure bacterial infections, including syphilis. Prior to this, there really wasn't a proper cure. 
And that's where we're going to get into the actual topic of today's episode, the Tuskegee Syphilis Study. Because in 1933, after penicillin was discovered, but before it was available as a cure, the U.S. Public Health Service and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, better known as the CDC, infected 400 African-American men in Alabama to observe the natural progression of untreated syphilis. Now, precisely because syphilis was such a menace, doctors in the public health service and the CDC wanted to study it. Okay, makes sense. They looked at trends in the U.S. and they determined that black populations in the rural South suffered from frequent syphilis outbreaks. The initial idea was to find out why black men in the South suffered from frequent syphilis outbreaks. And they wanted to control it, too, initially. Now, white populations also suffered from syphilis outbreaks, but at a slightly less viral rate. It was four in a thousand whites versus seven in a thousand blacks. Now, this is the 1930s. So, of course, people back then went to very racist places on why there was a slightly higher prevalence of syphilis in the black population. And I'm not going to repeat all of that horrible nonsense here. Just trust me, it was awful and racist and the worst. In reality, it was just social factors. Things like access to education access to jobs, access to medical care, which was systematically denied to Black populations in the pre-civil rights era days, especially in the South. Macon County, Alabama was one of these places where there was a high concentration of syphilis in its Black population. The Public Health Service, with help from local leaders, convinced men and women to give blood samples. They wanted the statistics on how many people in Macon County had syphilis. But that's not what the doctors told them. And this is like the first decision in a whole series of decisions, which is really unethical and immoral. They told these people that they were testing their blood to see if they had bad blood. Why? Now, Dr. Thomas Perrin, who worked for the Public Health Service, explained that doctors would use the term bad blood because they thought that uneducated black populations wouldn't know the medical term syphilis. Here's what he said, quote, Though most of the audience did not know the word syphilis, many of them were familiar with what they called bad blood disease and the miseries it brought, end quote. Once doctors had cataloged these samples, they found that 36% of the black population in Macon County had syphilis. 36%. Albemarle County, not too far away, only had about 7%, but this was an area where the black population was more educated, lending to the idea that access to education and opportunities and medical care and other amenities makes a huge difference in things like healthcare, right? But because Macon County had such a high rate of infection, it became the focus for what was to become the Tuskegee Syphilis Study. Now, initially, like I mentioned earlier, the Public Health Service wanted to help cure people of their infections, but penicillin wasn't widely available yet, right? It had only recently been discovered by Fleming. It hadn't gone through the trials. It wasn't out on the market. So check this out. Here's what doctors believed would help cure the syphilis infection. And to be fair, it didn't help a bit, but I certainly wouldn't do this. They used mercury. <laughs> mercury. Topically, to treat it, they would smear mercury on their bodies, on the infected sites. That's right. They had infected people rub mercury on their body. And if you somehow don't already know this, mercury is incredibly, incredibly toxic. Please don't touch mercury. <laughs> like, I, can't, I can't be any more clear. Mercury is toxic. Don't touch it. I mean, it wasn't even effective. That, that's, what, that's what's crazy here. It wasn't even effective in curing the patients. And okay, back then... Back then, they didn't know that mercury was this toxic, okay? That came later. But it certainly wasn't that helpful in curing the syphilitic patients. 
It could take upwards of 60 visits to a doctor within the span of one year to eliminate syphilis with mercury, and it wasn't even a guarantee that it would work. So, yikes. Now, because the treatment was so ineffective, the public health service pivoted, right? Instead of trying to cure people of their syphilis infections, because they didn't really have a way to cure them, they decided they wanted to know more about it. So funding for education and medical care for these black men was revoked, and instead, a new program was pitched, one where the scientists and doctors could gain valuable information about this virulent disease. This was the Tuskegee Syphilis Study. Now, one thing I want to square away before we get started is why they chose to only conduct this on the black populations instead of the white populations. If the stated purpose was to see how untreated syphilis affects the body, shouldn't anyone be fair game? Well, if you're sitting in the corner yelling, racism, you're you're correct. But again, that's not a satisfying enough answer. I want to dig deeper to really understand why these men made these choices, or at least what BS bogus response they gave for why they only picked black men. Now, for whatever reason, because there was no statistical data to back up these assertions, scientists believed that syphilis affected black and white populations differently. They believed that with white populations, the tertiary stage, that third stage, late stage, right? It presented more neurological symptoms, whereas with black populations, it was more cardiovascular symptoms. Neuro means brain, cardio means heart, okay? Simply put, they believed that white populations would suffer brain damage, but black populations would only suffer heart damage. There's no statistical evidence to back this up, right? Now that is when Assistant Surgeon General Tagliaferro Clark comes into the picture. What if he could get that data? Now, we in the 21st century, that's the 2000s, we all know this is nonsense. Syphilis will impact the host the same, regardless of skin color. It makes no difference, right? But for men like Mr. Clark, who are trying to prove that syphilis affected different races differently, and stay with me here, races are different in a meaningful way, that's what they wanted to try to prove, the Tuskegee study was that opportunity. Perhaps he could prove once and for all that whites and blacks are not the same. Again, this is pre-civil rights era South. It was different, and it was awful. And he would do this. He would try to prove this theory by allowing them to live with syphilis, untreated, and slowly cataloging, taking statistical data on how it slowly destroyed their bodies over time. So the answer is racism, but it's much more satisfying to expose them in this way than just to call them racist, to be fair. Now, Macon County was chosen because of that high percentage of untreated syphilis in the population. So there was a large sample size of men to pick from. But Macon County was also chosen because it was close to the Tuskegee Institute's John A. Andrew Memorial Hospital, one of the few hospitals in the segregated South that admitted black patients. The study got approved from the Surgeon General. It got approved from the Alabama State Board of Health, from the Macon County Board of Health. And with that, the project began. So again, we've now pivoted. We're not just studying who's got syphilis and how to cure it. We're studying men with syphilis, not telling them about it to see if there is a difference between the way that black men and white men contract and die from the disease. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at NemoursWellBeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. 
I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. Let's go. Now, to recruit participants, doctors went through Macon County, telling people they were there to test for bad blood. But now they're coming through a second time, and they're finding these men with bad blood. Again, they didn't use the word syphilis at all to get them to do this study. Now, one of the participants, Charles Pollard, said that, quote, They told me I had bad blood. All I knew was that they kept saying I had the bad blood. They never mentioned syphilis to me, not even once. End quote. This, by the way, is corroborated by Dr. J.W. Williams, who helped examine potential participants. Dr. Williams said, quote, The people who came in were not told what was being done. We told them we wanted to test them. They were not told, so far as I know, what they were being treated for or what they were not being treated for. They thought they were being treated for rheumatism or bad stomachs. We didn't tell them we were looking for syphilis. I don't think they would have known what that was. End quote. Corroborate by the way, if you're not familiar with the term, it means that you can prove it because you have another similar piece of evidence that supports it, that backs it up, okay? So corroborated, they were not told that they were being tested for syphilis. Now, over the course of several weeks, doctors brought in black men who tested positive for syphilis. They wanted men with early stage syphilis, right? So they're looking for like men around the age of 25. So essentially they're looking for men whose blood not only tested positive for syphilis, but potentially also still had the chakras. Why men and not women? Well, let's put it this way. Uh, the chakras would be more obvious on a man than a woman on the place where you would be infected by syphilis. Now, the original plan was to try to prove that syphilitic black men were more likely to have cardiosyphilis, they called it, right? Heart problems rather than neurosyphilis, brain problems. And how do you even get information on that? Well, you get a spinal tap. Spinal taps are painful painful procedures. And in the 1930s, they carried the risk of nerve damage and potentially paralysis. I mean, they're really dialing that pain up to 11, right? Now, a spinal tap is where a large needle is inserted into the base of your spine. Spinal fluid is removed. Then they could analyze and study the fluid and see if it impacted the brain. Men that they determined that did have syphilis were invited back in for some quote-unquote special treatment. And I'm quoting the language that the letters used, by the way. That's what they called it, special treatment. And they were given these spinal taps. The results from this concluded that 46.6% of the men had signs of cardiovascular disease and only 26.1% had signs of neurosyphilis. The doctors were happy with these results, argued that their hypothesis about the differences between black men and white men were correct and ready to move on with their lives. However, <laughs> another doctor enters the picture, Dr. Raymond H. Vondelaire, and he wanted to extend the study even further. Here's what he wrote in a letter to Assistant Surgeon General Tagliaferro Clark. Quote, at the end of this project, we shall have a considerable number of cases representing various complications of syphilis who have received only mercury and may still be considered untreated in the modern sense of therapy. Should these cases be followed over a period of five to ten years, many interesting facts can be learned regarding the course and complications of untreated syphilis. It seems a pity to me to lose such an unusual opportunity. End quote. So in brief, let's keep studying untreated syphilis in these men so we can learn more about their suffering. <laughs> the plan was then amended so that once these men died, their bodies would be autopsied and tested. 
Now, a Dr. Wenger, who was also part of this study, wrote in a letter to Dr. von der Leyen that, quote, as I see it, we have no further interest in these patients until they die, end quote. And if the study wasn't immoral before, lying to the men about their syphilis infections, conducting spinal taps without telling them why, and studying them without disclosing the truth about their disease, it certainly became immoral now. They had no intention of trying to cure these men. They wanted them to die so they could study their syphilitic corpses. The participants in this new phase of the study could be older because they wanted corpses to study, right? So it didn't matter if they were further along in their infections. In the end, 399 men infected with syphilis were chosen. 56% of them were older than 40. 5% of them were older than 70. 201 men without syphilis were chosen to be the controls. The doctors wanted to be able to compare syphilitic men to healthy men. So in total, 600 black men were part of this study. Now, what began as a small study that was meant to last only a few months, trying to prove that syphilis affected black men differently from white men, turned into a 40-year experiment. Each year, the men were brought back into the hospital for a routine, a battery of tests, right? They were also given medicine for what they were told was their bad blood. But the medicine was just pink-colored aspirin, an iron tonic, and vitamins. None of those things are going to be helpful against a syphilis infection. Every four years, men were given a more thorough physical exam to see those changes over time, both the healthy and the sick, right? They needed that comparative data. But then, of course, we know that penicillin was discovered in the 1920s and became available in the early 1940s. So surely these men could be cured with that, right? Well, yes, they could have been cured. But that went against the purposes of the study by that point. So despite the fact that antibiotics were introduced and could have cured many of these men, maybe not the ones in the tertiary or late stage syphilis, but many of the men could have been cured. They were kept in the dark about them. Doctors had also, purposefully, chosen a relatively illiterate population of test subjects so they didn't read the news or know much about this exciting new piece of medical technology. They purposefully chose men who were denied access to education and medical care so that they could leave them untreated and study how it killed them. Like, this happened in our history. (laughs) What? Anyway, so here's one doctor, Dr. John R. Heller, and here's what he said about it. Dr. Heller, by the way, was in charge of the study from 1942 to 1948, so in the time that penicillin was introduced onto the market. Quote, The longer the study, the better the ultimate information we would derive. End quote. For men like Dr. Heller, the data was more important than the man himself. It's the ultimate expression of dehumanization. They could save these men, but they value the data more than they value human lives. Dr. Heller also went on to say, quote, The men's status as infected, ill people did not warrant ethical debate. They were subjects, not patients. Clinical research material, not sick people. End quote. Now you might be thinking, what if one of these men from the study got sick with some other kind of bacterial infection, went to the doctor and got syphilis prescribed that way, right? Or not, you know, they, they were found they had syphilis and were given penicillin that way, right? Well, it wasn't enough to withhold a cure from syphilis from them. The doctors in the study went out of their way to make sure that doctors in Alabama did not prescribe them penicillin for any reason at all. Because, of course, that would taint the results of the study, right? Can't have that. How unbelievably awful. But also, we've got World War II looming. 
And men, as we know, are about to be drafted into the armed forces. Now, if any of these men, as part of the study, were enlisted, they would receive medical care for their syphilis, probably a whole bunch of penicillin just to give it to them and send them out into the field, right? So to combat this, Dr. Vondelier asked Macon County not to draft any men who were part of the study. And Macon County agreed. He boasted in a letter to another doctor, quote, So far, we are keeping the known positive patients from getting treatment. End quote. What a vile human being. One of the study's participants, Herman Shaw, underwent an examination by the Alabama state government in an attempt in 1947 to curb the spreading syphilis infections in the state. All right. They went around testing random men. They wanted to get some data themselves. He obviously tested positive for syphilis because he was part of the Tuskegee study and he was sent to the hospital for treatment. But when the Tuskegee study doctors heard about this, they told the hospital that Shaw was one of their Tuskegee patients. So the hospital did not give him any penicillin. He was sent on his way and told, you ain't supposed to be here. You're a Macon County patient. Michael V. Ushan, in his book, 40 Years of Medical Racism, The Tuskegee Experiments, says it best. So I'm just quoting him here. Quote, the Shaw incident today is considered one of the study's defining moments. Shaw was denied treatment with penicillin, which could have drastically improved his health. By withholding this cure for syphilis from the men in Tuskegee study, the doctors involved had forever crossed the line between what was ethical and what was not. End quote. But despite their best efforts, by 1952, about 30% of the test subjects had received some dosage of penicillin. About 7.5% of that group got enough to potentially cure them of their syphilis infection. Dr. Vondelier wrote that, quote, I hope that the availability of antibiotics has not interfered too much with this project. End quote. Now, the tides of human experimentation were changing or turning after World War II. We covered that in the episode on the Minnesota starvation experiment. After the horrors of what evil men like Nazi Dr. Joseph Mengele did with his victims, the idea of experimenting on people in ways that would lead to their deaths, you know, like with the Tuskegee study, was generally frowned upon. Dr. Count D. Gibson Jr., and I love that his first name is Count, Dr. Gibson, who was not part of this nonsense at all, by the way, heard that one of the involved doctors was giving a talk, so he went to go attend. It was in 1955 in a seminar. He talked all about the experiment, basically. Now, shocked, Dr. Gibson confronted the man and asked whether or not the men were receiving penicillin. It's 1955. Penicillin's been out for like a decade, right? It was 22 years after the study began, by the way, about halfway through the study. Their response, quote, I honestly feel that we have done them no real harm and have probably helped them in many ways, end quote. And no, they still were not giving these sick, infected men in the study any penicillin. Other men not involved? Yeah, it was relatively easy to get treatment, right? You just go to a doctor, you go to a hospital, and you get penicillin and boom, infection cured. But these 399 Tuskegee men were denied that care. As more and more doctors found out about the Tuskegee study, its ethics were increasingly called into question. Another doctor, Dr. Irwin J. Schatz, sent the following letter to the U.S. Public Health Service in 1965 once he found out about the study. Quote, I am utterly astounded by the fact that physicians allow patients with a potentially fatal disease to remain untreated when effective therapy is available. 
I assume you feel that the information which is extracted is worth their sacrifice. If this is the case, then I suggest that the U.S. Public Health Service and those physicians associated with it need to reevaluate their moral judgments in this regard. End quote. I agree. The study continued, despite the growing outcry from doctors, until 1972 when it went public. On July 25, 1972, investigative reporter Jean Heller published a story in the Washington Star about the Tuskegee study. And here's how the article starts, quote, For 40 years, the U.S. Public Health Service has conducted a study in which human beings with syphilis, who were induced to serve as guinea pigs, have gone without medical treatment for the disease, even though an effective therapy penicillin was eventually discovered. End quote. It's a pretty damning story that caused an absolute riot. People were outraged. Rightfully so. And this is after the Civil Rights Movement. This is after the Civil Rights Act of 1964. After so many changes that tried to prevent obvious racial discrimination. And now we're being presented with a 40-year study done only on Black poor Southern men to withhold medical care from only them. Horrendous. Immoral. I mean, how can doctors willingly refuse to treat the sick? Actively withhold medical care from them. And again, I'm going to use the word dehumanization here. The patients weren't seen as patients. They were seen as less than human. They were seen as just data. And in this climate, the study was labeled as racist, something I don't think anyone can deny at this point. Alabama civil rights attorney Fred Gray wrote that, quote, I saw the experiment as a case of racial discrimination, and in that sense, it became very personal for me, for I had dedicated my legal career to challenging the South's racist segregation under which the study's participants and I were born and lived. The study was as racist as segregation in schools because it was conducted solely with blacks when there were also whites in the community who also had syphilis, end quote. Now, the government appointed nine doctors to look into the study once it became public in 1972. Five of the doctors were black, and they reported in April 1973 that the study was ethically unjustified. Obviously. They concluded that the men with syphilis should have been treated with penicillin when it became available, and that the men should have been told about their condition, the study, and the risks that they faced by not being treated medically for their infections. The surviving men... I say that because a bunch died, the surviving men were offered free health care for the rest of their lives, including an immediate course of penicillin. Their families were offered funeral payments for when they died, regardless of the cause of death. The wives and children were also eventually offered health care if they contracted syphilis. Later, civil rights attorney Fred Gray helped get these men financial compensation, too. They ended up settling out of court, and the federal government paid $10 million in damages to more than 6,000 people affected. That included those with syphilis, those in the control group, and their descendants and their families. An official apology was given in 1997 by President Bill Clinton, the first really to do that, to the five of the eight surviving participants of the Tuskegee study. This was 64 years, keep in mind, after the study first began. And Clinton said that, quote, To our African-American citizens, I am sorry that your federal government orchestrated a study so clearly racist. You did nothing wrong, but you were grievously wronged. I apologize, and I am sorry that this apology has been so long in coming. End quote. Now, Shaw, the man who sought medical attention from the hospital and was turned away, he was still alive. He attended the event. His response to President Clinton he was grateful for, quote, doing your best to right this tragic wrong 
and resolving that America should never again allow such an event to occur, end quote. Now, the last survivor died on January 16th, 2004. He was 96 and died of natural causes. The Tuskegee syphilis study stands as a curious time in our nation's history. It was one of many examples of human experimentation that began before it was widely criticized after World War II, but one, in this case, predicated on racist beliefs about the differences between white and black men. And though other human trials were curtailed after World War II, this one continued, only mentioned in small groups between doctors, until it was exposed to the public in 1972. The backlash was swift, and the experiment was quickly shut down. But over the 40 years that this study continued, and these men were denied medical care, don't forget that 28 of them died from syphilis, 100 died from complications, 40 spouses were infected, and 19 kids were born with it. It stands as one of, unfortunately, many incidents in our country's wrongdoings against its own people. And hopefully, it will be a constant reminder that we're all human beings worthy of access to education, medical care, and dignity, regardless of our skin color. Thanks for joining me for this episode of A Popular History of Unpopular Things. My name is Kelly Beard, and I hope you've enjoyed the story of the Tuskegee Syphilis Study. Thank you for supporting my podcast, and if you haven't already checked out my other episodes, go have a listen. You can also support me and the show on Patreon. Just look up A Popular History of Unpopular Things and join as a cannibal, an explorer, or a historian. I think you can also join for free now, though all of the extra content, all the exclusive bonus stuff, is just for my members. Be sure to follow my podcast, available wherever you listen, so you know when new episodes are dropped. And stay tuned to get a popular history of unpopular things.